Hey, Road to Life, we love you. We're so glad to be back together on our podcast. This week, we're hearing from Pastor Micah Shepline. We love when he comes and visits. So make sure you give this podcast a listen. For more information, visit roadtolifechurch.com and we'll see you next week. Amen, amen. So we're going to be talking about something called singular plurality today. Now, I love just tongue tying things, and actually, I'm very proud. I don't know if he's in here. Ben did a great job on this graphic because, as you can see, singular plurality is essentially the word meaning uh, multiple things. And, and for me personally, if I was going to summarize all of the Old Testament for you, it would be these two words singular plurality. We were created for singular attention, focus, and relationship, yet over and over in the Old Testament, people chose plurality, which is, I want to serve God and these 20 other things. Now, immediately, some of us in here are like, oh, man, we having another idols talk? It's like, I want you guys to bring up all your carved images. I've got some gas. We're going to light the stage on fire. Right? No, we're not doing that. Some people are like, what kind of church is this? Don't worry, we'll pull out the snakes later. Um, <laughs> my mom's like, Ser-? no, it's like, you're right, mom. Maybe we won't Jack pull out the snake. snake. Yeah, Jake's got, Jack's got snakes, believe me. He's got some on the bottom of the lake from last week. Anyway, uh, but here's the deal. Singular plurality, what I mean by that is if you trace some of the large um, kind of themes of the Old Testament. So we've got... Adam, we've got Noah, we've got Moses, right? And then we have Jesus. Essentially, all of these iconic faith figures are God's response to a plural world and not a singular one. So it's God's response of raising, and even one of my favorite books in, in all the Old Testament is Judges because the stories are insane. Like even in, it, to give you an idea, there's a story in Judges about a guy who in order to deliver his people, he went to see the enemy king, stabbed him in the, in the stomach, and then slid out through his outhouse to escape, summon his army, and come back and beat him. How many of you guys know? Let's make a movie about that one. It's like... That, but that's, that's judges. But essentially what I'm talking about is God says, okay, I've created you with singular purpose, with singular intent. Serve me, worship me, and put me first. And everybody's like, all right, well, can I fit you into a plural reality? And once again, like I said, whether that's the story of Adam, whether that's the story of Moses, whether that's even the story of Abraham, whether that's even the story of Jesus, so many of the focus is everybody serving a ton of different things and not focused on the one thing. You know, a few weeks back, me and my wife, we were in Phoenix kind of as a prep trip, and there's a couple out there that's going to be actually helping us uh, plan our church. And and it was funny because if you know anything, Phoenix is warm right now. And my friends were there. When they got there, their AC was broken. And <laughs> somebody, <laughs> their AC was broken. And it was warm. It was warm. And so he went and he got, he got his AC fixed. But what was funny is, is he told me the story of how he bought his car. And it's a Honda CRV. And he told me, he said, you know, how do you normally buy cars? And if you didn't know this, I was in car sales when I was 19 for a period of eight months in which I hated my life. But I made it out anyway. Uh, and what's funny is I go, well, what do you mean? You just kind of go to a car dealership? He goes, no, but how do you negotiate? And I was like, what, what, what does that even mean? And he goes, well, I called this place and this car was 14. And I walked in. <laughs> And I said, will you take nine? And he said, yeah. 
looked at him and he said, will you take five? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, no, that's, and the salesman looks at him. He goes, no, that's not how it works. You already said nine and we agreed to it. You can't say five now. <laughs> and what was funny though is essentially he was like, red flag went up right then. I'm like, how are you going to fall over for five grand out the gate? <laughs> So what was funny, though, is that over a period of time, he, that car had some issues. And long story short, it's all figured out now. Austin, you're incredible, and I love you. But what was interesting, though, is because I never actually heard somebody going in, right, offering five grand, 30% off, and then the person immediately just being like, yeah, totally fine. And then ultimately, he looks and goes, well, maybe I'll just offer five, which the card was 14. It's like, it's like you take 20 bucks and a roll of bubble gum? Uh, but what's funny, though, is I think a lot of the times what we don't realize is that sin and, and really the enemy, Satan or the devil, what he's trying to do is he's trying to sell you a counterfeit life where anything that you'll offer him, he'll take. And what I mean by that is, is you know, he might come to you and say, okay, well, maybe this little comfort, maybe this little sin, maybe this little addiction, Will you do this? And what we're do, really doing is we're selling the, the, the whole price of what God purchased for your life for whatever it is, the comfort, whatever it is, the need being scratched, or whatever it is, us just living kind of a mundane and ordinary life when, when God purchased something so much more than that. And so I want to encourage you, a lot of us, maybe you're looking at our life, and I'm not going to ask, you know, has anybody been negotiating with the devil this morning? Right? But what I am going to say is that sometimes inadvertently we don't realize that as we're stuck in sin, we're negotiating our calling. As we're, as we're settling for mundane existence where we don't really have relationship with God outside of a Sunday morning, what we're doing is we're negotiating our callings away. We're looking and saying, okay, God purchased this with so much worth, but at the same time, you know, God, I'll, I'll settle for this. And God didn't settle when he died for you. The cost that he paid was not just, okay, I'm going to do the bare minimum. It was so much more than that. And for some of us, I'm just really trying to get to the point that maybe we've bought into a plural existence where we serve God and we pursue Jesus, but we also have a lot of other things that we're doing. You know, and maybe some of us, if I asked you, when was the last time we even spent time with the Lord during the week, whether that's having a time of prayer, not just over a meal or cracking open our Bible, not just, you know, as a bedtime story to our kids, but rather where we had a moment where we said, God, I'm here for you. Many of us maybe wouldn't even remember that. And maybe that's the first sign of a plural existence is where God's fitting in the margins instead of the number one topic we should be focusing on. And for some of us, immediately, the, the, the red flag goes up of like, well, Micah, you're the pastor guy, and so that's what you do. So, of course, you're going to tell me that. I'm going to be honest. It doesn't really get any easier on, on a stage or talking about the Bible because it's all an overflow of our heart. And essentially what I'm getting at today is are we living a plural existence when God wants it to be singular? And more than that, there's this story in Scripture that I'm going to be honest, I don't know if um, many of us know this story. 
And what I mean by that is because I've heard this story before, but when I read it this time, it stuck out so much more, and it's an interesting story. But essentially, how I have to give the backdrop is what you need to realize is that in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were essentially created um, as God's chosen people. And the reason is, is because all the other people were kind of going nuts. They were, they were just not following God, wanted nothing to do with them. So God brought about an entire existence of people from a man by the name of Abraham. Now, when he brings about these people, though, what happens is, is they actually are taken captive in two separate instances in the Old Testament. Now, some of you guys, captivity is something that you don't necessarily understand. So let me give a little kind of refresher. So in the first captivity, you see as they go to Mo, they, Mos, not Moses, Joseph brings them to Egypt to provide for them during a famine. And then ultimately, Egypt got so comfortable, but it wasn't where they were supposed to be. It wasn't where God had actually told them to be at, and they settled in, and then as their numbers grew, the Egyptians in turn became people who were a little bit um, scared of the, of the population, and so they enslaved them. So the first captivity of the children of Israel, you actually find, is them in Egypt for 400, over 400 years in which God miraculously brings about a deliverer, Moses, and re-brings them back to the land that they had before they entered into Egypt. But the second captivity is what we're going to talk about today, and it's the captivity of Babylon. Now, this one's a little bit different because it's actually the people were brought into exile, and what that means is, is essentially the people were kind of so screwed up that God just said, you know what, I'm done with y'all. We're going to reset this thing. And so what happens is, is the ba Babylon comes in and lays siege to a lot of the cities and then pretty much picks up everybody and relocates them to Babylon, gives them all new names. And, and ultimately God says, you know, I'll lead you out of here. Don't worry, but this is going to be a reset for y'all. Because you've been doing your own thing and serving your own gods, and it's not okay. But what we're going to focus on today, and this is kind of, like I said, is a, a topic that I think is borderline kind of funny when we phrase it the way it is, it is today, is we're going to focus on when Babylon took all the people out, they installed their own people to run the cities. And I'm not trying to get so, this is, I know this is a lot of Bible talk for some of us to track, but it's okay is we're going to talk about the nation of Judah. And if you know anything, David, once he died, and Solomon, that Judah and Israel actually split. Um, and it was foretold that that was going to happen. And so when it split, Samaria was the capital of Judah, and then Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. And what's interesting, so Babylon takes over Judah. And as it takes over Judah, what's it, what it's doing is it's installing people to oversee that area. But before we do, this is kind of the backdrop. It's in 2 Kings 17, verse 9. It said, the sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. So right now, this is the singular reason that you see them being taken captive and exiled into Babylon. If I could summarize all of it, it's this. Sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. So, and... and in all honesty, right, I'm, I'm not going to call people out. We're not going to, you know, have everybody come up that's doing this. But I'll be, I know there are people in this room that as you read this verse, you're convicted, right? If we were to take out sons of Israel and put our names, we've done things secretly which were not right. And today, we're not going to beat people up for that. I want to encourage you. Maybe that might be a moment where you just repent of that or just say, you know what, Lord, I'm sorry for that. But really what we're going to talk about is what happens when we don't repent from that. What happens when we don't turn from that stuff? 
right? So what's going to happen is we're going to jump into 2 Kings 17, 13 through verse 17, and it's actually going to say a couple things that are interesting. And once again, we're giving the backdrop here. It says this, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and seer, right? Oh, it's not up there. They're coming. It's all right. Verse 13. Yep. The Lord warned Israel and Judah. Now here's the deal. If every single time you went near somebody spiritual, they walked up to you and told you the three things you were doing wrong. And it was the same three things every time. And they say, God told me to tell you this. You better change. How many of you guys know that would get your attention? Like when the Bible says every prophet and seer, that's why there's major and minor prophets in the Old Testament. What you find is they are going to the king saying, don't be an idiot, don't be an idiot, don't be an idiot, don't be an idiot. And guess what? No change. So this is where we're starting is God is like, hey, can you tell these people not to do these things? And the prophets would show up and say it. And then you know what they'd do is they'd look at them and be like, all right, sweet. I'll think about that. So let's keep reading. It says this, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servant, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord, their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. I love that statement. They went after false idols and became false. Because I think that's what a lot of people don't really realize is that when we live a plural, uh, a plural lifestyle where we seek other, not I'm not going to even call it gods, but just other things above God, is that those false things make you false. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of the times what we do is we weigh the pros and cons of the decisions that we make. Okay, well, if I choose the career over the family, at least I'll be able to provide, Right. Okay, well, if I choose this, this political party over, over really loving my neighbor, at least I know that the values I want will be. There are so many layers in which we as believers today are tasked with trying to understand and navigate. How do we be people who follow God with our singular focus without elevating things that maybe don't follow God because we think they do? And what I'm trying to get at today is that we can't live a plural existence and say we serve a singular Savior because everything pulls us in different directions. And so what's happening, right, is we're looking and we're saying, okay, they've went after false idols and then they became false. And I'm not trying to essentially get us to say, well, I serve this over Jesus because obviously none of us are going to say that. But what I'm saying is, is I think that some of us, we hold stronger to our beliefs, stronger to what we think is right, and stronger to who we are than really what God says in his Bible says. And maybe some of us today, maybe we just need to get to a point where we kind of open up our clenched up hands that are just holding tightly to the things that matter to us and ask ourselves the question, does this matter to Jesus? Does this matter to God? Does it matter to the extent that it matters to me? And so what I want to do, let's continue reading. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, and they should not do like them. So essentially, it's don't do what everybody else is doing. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. How many of you guys know? It's like the one calf didn't get you good. Let's make a set. Let's make two this time. Maybe it'll work out better. It's a good Bible joke for you guys who know that. Anyway. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Next verse. 
verse 17. I can pull it up here. I got it. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings. How many of you guys know? Red flag there. Like, if you're serving a God that's like, hey, can you burn your child for me? I would, I would venture to say that might be something that crosses the line. And use it, deviation and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So as you guys can see, they've a little bit lost track of what they're supposed to be doing. And I don't really have a, a ton of time to go into the, the, the nitty-gritty of the Mosaic Law at the time, but I would just venture to say that pretty much everything they're doing, Mosaic Law kind of summarized into the Ten Commandments. You know, we're pretty much breaking a lot of Ten Commandments right now. So what happens, like I said, is they're picked up by the Babylonians and then they're enslaved and, and exiled and, and pretty much taken away from their native lands. But this is the passage of scripture that I want to focus on today because I think it's pertinent to who we are. It says this, 2 Kings 17, 24 to 33. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharium. And placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them that killed them. Think about this. You're a neighboring invading army. You take everybody out and then you take over and then you just institute what you've always done. The only problem is, is you don't realize that there actually is a God of that land. And the God of that land is literally like, I am not going to let you be in this area and function the way you're doing it and desecrate my name and what this land is supposed to be. And it actually says, right, he sends lions. He sends lions and attack them and kill them. Now listen to what they do because this is what I'm talking about today. Sorry for all the backstory. This is what we're getting at. It says this. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Samaria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines and the high places like the Samaritans had made. Every nation's in the city which they lived. Jump to verse 32. They also feared the Lord. Okay, pause. This is what they decided to do. Okay, we are now in charge of this area, but we're being attacked by lions because we're not giving any little sliver of faith to the God of this land. What we're going to do is we're going to bring back some of the priests. They'll teach us just enough about that God to where we'll worship him and all our other stuff. Isn't this, isn't this a little bit interesting, right? Is we're being attacked, let's do just enough to be not attacked anymore. Let's keep reading. It says this. They also feared the Lord and appointed from themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of nations from among them who had carried them away. Plurality to me is this. Let me do just enough following God to not get eaten by lions. And if I were to ask you the question, right, I think deep down, if we really examined our hearts and our lives, we 
in our own reasoning, assess what is the amount of following God it's going to take for my life to be able to sustain where it's at. And this is what's interesting is actually if you research this passage, if you were to continue reading in 2 Kings 17 and, and 18, 19, and 20 as this continues to go on, is that actually this worked for a period of time. Is God, I will give you just enough to not be attacked and eaten by lions. But ultimately over time what happens is as their behaviors were just as bad as the Israelites and then God returned his people to that place with a reset. And what I'm saying today is this. If I were to ask you the question, do you do just enough to, to hold the bad things of this world off? And what is that? I think a lot of us maybe would have different answers, but maybe some of us would agree. You know, maybe I do do just enough to hold the bat off. I do just enough to where I don't get eaten out there in the world that feels like lions are everywhere. I do just enough to where my heart's okay, but maybe, and I think this is the enemy of singular focus, is us thinking that we can do just enough when it's not even about doing, it's about receiving. And see, some of us, all we think we're, we're, that's holding the lions off is what we do rather than what we receive. See, we can't even remember the last time maybe we spent time with the Lord and he said something to us or he spoke something to us or we felt his spirit in his presence. We can't even remember the last time that we were truly still and allowed him to maybe fill us with his love, his grace, and his acceptance. Because truly in our world today, all we search for a lot of the times is acceptance. We think that we can fill love with other people. We think we can fill acceptance with accomplishment. We think that we can provide the things that only God can give. And then we get to a place in our lives where maybe we're empty or devoid of the feeling of significance. And God's essentially saying, all you've done is make sure the lions aren't attacking, but really you've withered away on the inside. Because once again, when all we're doing is doing and not receiving, we're missing the concept of what it means to be a son and a daughter. And for some of us, what I, what I want you to get to realize is that plurality, all it is, is us thinking we can fit God into a doing category of doing everything that we're doing plus doing a little bit of Jesus, which is essentially what these people did. It's okay, we're going to serve the Asherah, we're going to do the Asherah, we're going to do Baal, we're going to do this, we're going to do our gods, and we're going to do this God, and that should be enough. But see, the thing is, is it's not about that. It truly is about what we're receiving from our God that can sustain and build our souls. It's a holistic approach of us saying, Father, I need you every day. I need you every moment. I need you in every season. I need you in every situation. I need you in every circumstance. I need you when it's good. I need you when it's bad. I need you when I'm all over the place, and I need you when I'm grounded. I just need you, Father. And so today, that's the, the, the if you were to ask me, what is the point I'm trying to get across, is to ask us all the question. Are we doing just enough to keep the lions away, but not enough for us actually to be whole? Because this is what we're created to be, is God wants you to be whole. He doesn't want you to just survive. He doesn't want you to just scrape. He wants you to be fulfilled. 
And so what I want to do with my remaining time is talk about how we avoid the curse of plurality. Because that's what you have to realize is anytime you're serving other gods, you're not serving any god. You know, I had a conversation with a guy this week who uh, hasn't been in church uh, in a little bit, but that's fine because, you know, that's pretty much when you work in my age range, it's, <laughs> that's kind of how it rolls. <laughs> and for some of you guys, uh, it, actually since COVID, I was reading a research book this week, is uh, they said before COVID, the average church attendance for somebody was 1.6 times, uh, but now it's absolutely cut in half. It's 0.8 times a month. So thank you guys for your 0.8 today. <laughs> so hopefully we'll see you next week. <laughs> anyway, um, but, but really I was talking to this guy because um, there was somebody he was asking me about and I essentially told him, I said, you know, a lot of the times how this works is we come to church and this is, this is bonus information for y'all because this is, in my opinion, is about as watered down and boiled down as it gets if you're going to make it with the Lord and not just with the Lord, just period, spiritually with Jesus, is what happens is, is when you say, I am a Christian and I am following Jesus wholeheartedly, is you give God permission to come into your life and kick anything off the throne that's challenging him. And so what happens is, is a lot of people, we come to church, and the reason we fall away is because it feels like our life is getting worse when really God's just reordering things. He's reorganizing. And what's sad is when people come, and you tell them beforehand, you say, hey, and in a particular situation, I said, hey, I'd be very aware of this because this seems to be all of your attention and focus, and I know that God has a calling for your life, but as long as that is your attention and focus, I promise you he will take that away to make sure that he is the attention and focus. And what happens over and over is the thing that we so wanted and the thing that we so needed. And when we come to God, God is like, I'm the thing you want. I'm the thing you need. I remove everything else, so I am the focus. And then what happens is when he removes those things is when it gets difficult. Is when we're looking and saying, God, is this really you? And he's like, yeah, because I'm not going to compete for your time. And whether that takes a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, is if you have things in your life that you place above God, there will come a time where he makes that thing crumble to remind you, hey, do you still choose me? And boy, that's painful. And it's tough. But it's worth it. How to avoid the curse of plurality. How well do you follow God when you don't need him? Because I'll be honest, I feel like this is what feels like a little bit of the, the church in America today is, man, when we really need God, we try to get as close as we can. But when we really don't need God, then we really don't have time for him. When things are really not going good, you better believe I'm going to be at everything. I'm going to put my name in a prayer card for every prayer meeting. You better believe I am going to, I'm doing it all. But when things are good, do we really have him in the, in the core of who we are? And so what I'm really trying to get at today is that the true test, this is the true test of a believer today, is when you don't need God, do you still need him? And what I mean by that is when your bank account's going good, your marriage is great, your family's great, work is going good, is he in your life? Is he a priority? Is he a focus? Is he everything to you still? Or is it only when things are going bad? 
Because this is what happens over and over in the Old Testament, is I need God, I'll do everything for him, and then the moment he gets them out of that place, guess what? We don't need him anymore. And in all honesty, I'm gonna, this is a whole nother sub point, and I'm sorry for even going here for you parents because I'm not one and I could, I could never relate personally, but I would say one of the most, uh, the thing that is missed the most in the Old Testament is that parents did not raise their children to remember what God had did for them. And after generations would take place, they forgot the goodness, they forgot the honor, and they forgot the provision of the Father and walked away. And I would say this to to, to parents today, to make sure that you always remind your children of what God has done, what he's provided, and where he has taken you from. Because the greatest travesty in the Old Testament is the same mistakes happening over and over. And it's because generationally there would be gaps between breakthrough in which the parents wouldn't remind, hey, God did this, remember it? It wasn't written like today. It was just, uh, it was the prophets would talk about it and things, but if the parents didn't actually instill what God had done, a lot of the times it was lost in translations. Generations would take place and then intermarrying and all this crazy stuff. But what I'm saying is, is when it's good, don't forget who makes it good. When it's good, don't forget who makes it good because if you forget, it can turn bad in a hurry. The second thing is this. Would you rather just hold off the lions or fully experience Jesus as your friend, your provider, your comforter, your support system, your standby, your healer, your ad? This can go on and on and on because some of us all we're wondering is, God, can you be a shield for me? Not a savior for my soul. Not a sustainer for my heart. Not a standby in my depression. Not a source of hope when the world is hopeless. See, maybe all of us we've looked for is God to maybe protect us and not actually provide the needs of our spirit. And so today what I'm challenging you to do is that you need to realize that fulfillment with Christ only comes through a completely surrendered life. Completely surrendered. You know, in the New Testament, I think many of us know how many times God kind of essentially pulls children close and says, I want you to be like this child. And many of us, right, I I would venture to say that me as a 29-year-old, the last thing I want to do is curl up with a bottle and be showered at night by my mom. The last thing I want to do is wear a onesie to bed. The last thing I want to do is be fed in a high chair, tied down. (laughs) The last thing that I want to do is be woken up, carted around, my diaper changed, all of it. But the imagery is this, you can't do anything without him. That's the imagery. And I pray today that some of us, we've just looked at God as, will you protect me? Rather than God, will you just be with me in everything? Will you provide for me in anything? Can I count on you in everything? Can I communicate with you in everything? See, some of us are so focused on protecting ourselves against the lions that we don't even know that we're withering away. And that's not what it's intended to be. The last one is this. How is your life made up currently to ensure that God remains a singular focus for you? How is your life made up to where you know in the depths of your soul, okay, I'm prioritizing. 
I'm making sure he's my sustainer. I'm making sure he's my focus. I'm making sure he's my life. Habits, priorities, involvement with community or in the church. See, there's so many layers to this. And what I'm really encouraging you today is this, is as you walk away from here to assess, man, am I just doing enough for the lions to not attack me? Or do I need to make a plan? God, I want to make a commitment. God, I want to step forward into this and say, okay, what does it look like? And if some of you guys are looking and saying, man, I'd love just help with this. Or I'd love to have just a little plan. I'd love, come talk to me after service. I can give you a couple random things that I do that are no more than 10 or 15 minutes a day that continuously keep me steadfast. There's a great book that I've recommended here before, The Common Rule by Justin Ely. It's an incredible book about a guy who has four kids and runs his own law firm and essentially how he stays spiritually rooted. It's an incredible book, but I'm telling you this, don't do just enough for the lions not to attack you because you're missing out on the whole scope of Jesus as your savior. My final thought is this, many of us know the passage, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8. In it, the devil is described as a roaring lion seeking those who he can devour. Now, I want to give a little bit of a, a, a lesson on this for, like I said, my final minute here. If you know anything about lions and how they hunt, is it's, it's not normal. And what I mean by that is that typically what they do is they isolate those who are sick, who are weak, or isolated. So what they'll do is they'll assess, they'll they'll creep up behind a a herd of animals and they'll assess who are the people who are distant? Who are those who are a little bit slower and a little bit weaker? And what they'll do is they'll decide, okay, and all of them will come into alignment. Okay, this animal. And what's crazy is, is when they pick that animal out, when they attack a herd, they will literally bypass other animals that are closer and easier to get and focus on the one that is isolated, that is sick and that is weak. But what's also interesting is that, is that actually how they hunt is that the leader of the pride will, will leave the pride of lions, sneak in front of the herd. And when it says he roars, the goal of the roar is to get the herd, the, the herd in the middle to run backwards into the pride of lions behind it. And so what's interesting is when I talk about today, uh, when I talk a little bit today about doing enough to, to keep the lines away, what you've got to realize is that the roars of life, you've got to keep running and going forward. Because if you're going backwards, that's what the enemy wants you to do. The second thing is if you're looking and you're saying, man, I am isolated because that's the number one thing is because when they're weak and when they're sick, they're slower and they distance themselves from the pack. If you're looking and saying, I am isolated, I'm encouraging you today to really evaluate how you cannot be isolated because that's the number one place the enemy wants you is isolated and easy to pick off. Don't forget the strength is in the pack. The strength is in going forward. The strength is in disregarding the roar right in front of you and having faith you can get through it. Let's all stand to our feet.